the way to build your business is just find questions you're really interested in answering that your level of confidence is above those questions. You know the answer, you feel totally confident. And then over time, you're just gonna keep moving those two bars up higher and higher and higher. And when you don't know, you're gonna say, I don't know. I'm still saying, I don't know. You're listening to episode 200 of Your Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Thank you for joining us today. And on this episode, we have another excellent guest. This time, Carl Richards joins us. As a former financial planner and current columnist, author, and speaker, Carl had plenty to cover from elegant simplicity to the real work to be done in the financial planning profession. Up next, Carl discusses the role emotions play when working with clients and why financial planning professionals should focus on understanding problems, not offering solutions. Today's episode is brought to you by Markel Insurance. As an investment advisor, you know even the littlest details can make a huge impact, such as those tiny footnotes in the back of a prospectus or annual report. For your firm's professional insurance coverage, the details are also important. That's why your firm needs insurance coverage developed for financial service professionals to protect you, your firm, and your assets. Markel's investment advisors program offers heirs and emissions and directors and officers insurance. They've insured our industry and profession for three decades and have a strong reputation with an community community as a result of its industry experience, stable premiums, and excellent claims management services. Markel is proud to be the choice of thousands of financial service professionals. Contact your insurance broker or agent today to get a quote from Markel. Well, thanks, Carl, for joining us today. Pleasure. Super excited to have this conversation. As we've heard in the introduction, you're a New York Times columnist, um, and you were a financial planner. You know, with that role that you've had and kind of stepping away from being a day-to-day financial planner, what has that position helped you see that other people in our profession might miss? That's a really good question. I, I, I sort of feel like just through a series of, you know, really fortunate events, I've, I, I've got sort of a really unique view because of the amount of kind of feedback I get from humans about planners, right? Like, like readers of, readers of, of, the, my book or the you know, or the column send me a lot of feedback about planners and what they want, what they don't want, and that's been an incredibly useful. Sometimes I feel like I'm playing the the role of the Lorax. Remember that Dr. Seuss character? Yeah. Like I, I'm both ways. Like sometimes I feel like I'm playing the Lorax for the planners. Like I speak for the planners because they're too busy doing their planning to speak. So I'm telling you everybody. And then sometimes I feel like I'm speaking for the people to the planners and saying things like please, will you keep it simpler? Please stop using those words that you use. I don't know what they mean. Please stop telling me about the missing the 10 best days in the bear market. I just want to hug. You know what I mean? Like, like those sorts of things. So it's been really fun to have a foot in both of those worlds. When you're speaking for planners to, to clients of the general population, what is it that the general pop- population needs to hear from financial planners that, that you're sharing with them? See, I believe that there is a, a sort of a, a, a secret little society of real financial planners that do real work. And by definition of real work, I mean like they're not only are they technically like rock stars, right? Like they've got the spreadsheet and the calculator nailed. They also know how to overlay on top of that this art of advice and you know empathy and trust and listening and asking good questions like the there's a small group worldwide of those people that what what unfortunately they're secret 
<laughs> and most of the world, when I tell people about the work that a real financial planner does, they say things. I've had people literally say things like, oh, that's cute, Carl, like the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. Like they don't believe we exist. I often find myself saying like, oh, yeah, I work with financial planners. And then I get that look. It's like, oh, yeah, you're, oh, those people who sell me life insurance, you know, and I have to say, no, 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 not like that. Right. And then I have to go in to explain, like, I don't even know how to explain it. You just have to experience it. But there are actually this there's this group of people who do amazing work. And I've seen it for the last 25 years. I've, I mean, I felt like I was doing it for a long time. And I've seen so many other people do real amazing work that I can. Uh, I, I've, I've I've toyed around with. I'm going to do this someday. I've toyed around with like a, I want to take like a, a a group of journalists on a tour of like come with me. We're going to go see this rare breed of human called a real financial planner in the wild. Like come with me, watch like and like drive them around to different offices and and um, help them see the work because it's so hard to explain what real planner does because people have always had this experience with the opposite like the general traditional financial services industry is what they're thinking they're going to get and yet when they sit down and meet with the real pro it's so much different so it's almost hard to put words to it as a profession as a financial planning profession are we just not doing a good job marketing ourselves are we just not using the right words how can we be better as the real financial planners yeah, it's a real dilemma. Here's the dilemma. The, the the words that we want to use, we we are not allowed to use because they've been co-opted by the fake people. So we can't say things like, you can trust me, right? Like that'd be the last thing you could say, right? Like you can be confident in me. Like I'll put you first ahead of my own interests. I, I won't have conflict. Like it, it almost feels a bit like if, if somebody has to say that, they must be hiding something. So we're in a real pickle. So the only thing I think, and this is what I did, and it's what I would encourage everybody to do, is you've just got to tell those stories, right? And and I realize we can't do, there's some some problems with case study marketing, but go read my books. Like I tell all those stories in the books. Those, those never got me in any trouble. So I think we need to do a better job of finding creative ways to show people instead of telling them to show them what that was to allow them to feel what it is and so yeah we're not doing a good job of it but partially because it's a really hard job to do and secondarily you're too busy being a pro to ask you to also be an amazing marketer is really hard i think there are companies and organizations that should do a better job um but that's not for me to to, to worry about. One of the things that you had mentioned is that clients want simple. When did you realize this? And has this been a theme through most of your work? Yeah. So I didn't realize I was doing this and I didn't realize it was just sort of structurally how my brain worked until maybe five years ago. So this was right. I've been writing that, that the sketch guy column for weekly for 10 years. And it wasn't until three or four years into it, I realized like it wasn't really even about money that I was addicted to. It was this idea of taking a, a complex thing that really matters to somebody and making it simple. But for your audience, it's just a natural thing. For like the fake financial advisor audience, it's a sales tool. Complexity is a sell selling tool for them. 
for your audience, like the, the people that listen to this, it's just simply this thing that we naturally do as we, as we understand more and more about a particular subject. It, it's a natural tendency to think people care, or at least that they want us to tell them about it. And we also, we have a problem, and Michael Kitsis and I have had this argument a bunch, and it's really fun. Like We enjoy talking about this. We, there's also a problem. We think we're in the solution business. Mm, and, and, yeah. and we're not. We're in the problem understanding business. And nobody cares about your solutions. They care about their problems. And so if you understand, if you make that switch, what you really want to become good at, yeah, you got to be a rock star on the solutions. I mean, you got to be better than anybody else. You, you have to be, but that's just table stakes. What you really want to become good at is the diagnosis, right? Like, asking really good questions, listening, making things super simple and understanding that when you say risk and you get a blank stare, it doesn't help to say, you know, standard deviation, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, so learning and, and I've been warned. So if we understand that we're in the, we're not in the solution business, at least at the beginning of a client engagement, you're not in the solution business. You're in the problem. You can't write a prescription until you've thoroughly diagnosed. So be better at thoroughly diagnosing. And then we understand if you thoroughly diagnose, think about what happens when you go to the doctor. If, if you've been thoroughly, if you feel thoroughly diagnosed and you leave with a piece of paper that you can't even read, you take that piece of paper to a scary place with people with scary white coats on and you give it to them, they fill it, they make you sign a form that says, you, you know, if you grow a third arm and you won't operate heavy farm equipment, whatever, you, and you take it home and you take it. You didn't do it, you didn't get a second opinion. You didn't Google the medicine. You just took it. Well, it couldn't be any simpler than that. The only reason it was that simple was because you felt thoroughly diagnosed. I'm, I'm going to argue it's not because he, the doctor, it's not because she had a white coat on or MD after her name. It's because she thoroughly diagnosed you. So the solution can be super simple if the diagnosis is thorough and look and two things have to happen you have to thoroughly diagnose like for your own good like to make sure your solution is good and number two the client has to feel thoroughly diagnosed and those are two separate things right like you you could you could nail it in the first five minutes as you get better in this industry right you pattern match so fast that like in the first five minutes you're like i already know what i'm gonna tell this client but you can't tell them yet You've got to let them feel thoroughly diagnosed, right? And so if that happens, then the solution can be simple. If that doesn't happen, the solution's got to be complex and you've got to overcome objections. You've got to go get sales training and you've got to be, you know, like all that stuff. I would just say, throw all that out the window. Forget getting better at sales. Get better at listening. You know, you've said several times in there is about how the client feels. And it's been interesting mm. because I've been watching a lot of how these, uh, I've been watching conversations online with 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 newer financial planners. Um, and, and for context, we're going through this, you know, the coronavirus is going on. I mean, we're, I just got a, you know, shelter in place order from my city right now. So we don't know how long this is going to go on. And, and it's been really interesting. Tell me about the relationship between emotions and the feeling and logic. Let me tell you a, a quick story. I've got a, a, a really good planner who um, has an investment process he's super proud of. So it's this like evidence-based, you know, research investment process. And like 
most of us who adopt that form of investing, we think everybody, you know, everybody cares and we're super smart. And we run around, we, th- we think it's our value proposition. So we tell everybody. It. And he had a client who was really, it was a really large client it was between 15 and 20 million, as I recall. And they were interviewing a couple different firms and they finally decided to, to join my friend who, whose name is Matt. And they finally decided to hire Matt and his firm and the client, the, in this relationship, the um, it was the wife who was the breadwinner. She had sold her business. She was the one making the major decisions. She called Matt and said, Matt, listen, we've decided to join your firm. We've decided to hire you guys as our financial planners. And she said, but I want to make something clear. It's not because of that investment process you're so so proud of. In fact, it's kind of in spite of it. He said, she said, it's because of the way you made us feel and particularly the way you made our adult children feel. I've been playing with that idea since 20 years ago when I got my first job in this industry, that, that money doesn't equal spreadsheets and calculators. It equals emotion and feeling. But when I heard that story, I was like, how do you, what do you even do with that? What does it even mean? And I think to your question, what's the relationship? Like, we just got this wrong. I, yes, of course. There's a science to finance. Yes, of course, there are things that fit in the spreadsheet and the calculator. But most of this is dreams and goals and fears and worries. It's the stuff that kept you up at night. Like, Hannah, I bet if I said something like, um, don't be spoiled. I mean, what just happened to you? Oh, yeah. You immediately defenses are up. Yeah. and, And for some, maybe not you, I took a chance there. But for some, you feel like you're seven again. And your mom or dad are saying, don't be spoiled, right? Or we don't talk about that. Or you have the fear of watching your parents worry about whether or not they were going to be able to pay for the bills next week. So, or the opposite, like, you know, happiness and joy was somehow you were rewarded or your sense of identity, even your sense of love, safety, and belonging sometimes are wrapped up in money. So don't tell me, like you think you got a spreadsheet and calculator job. My friend, I have to tell you, you, yes, you do. But on top of that, you've got a, you've got a money and emotion, uh, sorry, a feelings and emotion job. I'm even cringing asking this question, but I'm still going to ask it. Can you ever quote solve emotions with logic or with spreadsheets? Yeah, such a, that's like just such a good question. I think particularly like in, in in sort of the context of the time we're talking, but it's always true. Like w- let's just use scary markets as an example. Um, you know, when when somebody's scared, and this is true when they're also like like it's true for fear and it's true for greed as well, but when somebody's scared and they want to get out Right, and they make a they make a phone call like, Hannah, hey, don't you see what's going on? I just want to get out. Like what we are trained to do, and this is still true, and I can't, I can't, I actually kind of can't believe it, but it's still true. We are trained to point to facts and figures. Right, we're trained to, and I'm not using the word lecture like a parent, but like we're trained to lecture like a college professor. We're we're trained to spray them with facts and figures. Oh, don't you know the 10 best days? If you miss the 10, like we all use the 10 best days thing. And we see this online. We see this on Twitter. We see this in the articles people are writing in light of a scary market. And I'm like, your question, can you solve? No. When somebody's in the middle of making an 
a, a decision that is emotional. And we could even say it might be natural, just to be clear, like it might be natural to want to get out because some we're wired to get away from things that scare us, but it's not rational. When somebody's making an irrational decision, it doesn't work to try and reason with them. Like try that with your teenager. See how it goes, right? Try somebody who's smoking currently with a cigarette in their mouth. Try giving them some stats about lung cancer, right? It doesn't work. What they want first. So no, you can't solve it with a spreadsheet and calculator. What they want first is to be heard. They want to be seen. They want space. And that doesn't have to look like you don't have to look. I'm a huge fan of work being done in financial therapy, but it doesn't have to even go quite that far. It can just simply be, wow, sounds like you're really scared right now, right? Or nervous about the market. In fact, Hannah, I get nervous too when I look at the news. It can be that simple. Then we can reconnect them to the things they told us were important, like the plan. And then we can get to, okay, Let's talk a little bit about this. And then we can get to facts and figures, historical data, the numbers, the calculator, but first a hug, right? That's the way I like to think of it. You've talked about making making things making things simple. And so I know a lot of financial planners who are listening to this are like, yes, and I'm dealing with all of these really complex things. What's your process to help, like as you're trying to take a complex idea to make that simple? What's What's your process look like? So here's the way I think about it. And if it might be useful, like if you're not driving, just grab a piece of paper and on, on the left-hand side of the paper, take a pen and just start right in the middle of the paper, just start drawing a line across the paper. And about the time you get to the middle, you've got a straight line about to the middle. When you get to the middle, start just looping it around, like make a big ball of yarn, right? And so make a big ball of yarn, big, messy, messy ball of yarn, and then then take that line back out the other side. And that's really how I describe the process is like, I've got a, got a question I want to solve. I've got this interesting problem I've got to deal with. And then you go into it. And when you get it, and this is also points at, 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 at a fear that a lot of financial, especially new financial planners think like, if I make this too simple, nobody will need me. And that, that I just want to tell you, that's a, that's a lie of the devil. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a trick. The trick of the devil. He's trying to trick you because it's so untrue. But I understand where it comes from because I felt the same way. And here's why. On the left-hand side of the paper, before you go into that ball of yarn is a place called simplistic. That's where you are worried about being. That's where people who should be selling shoes or cars but are pretending to be financial advisors, that's where they live. You, Mr. and Mrs. Financial Planner, you've gone into that ball of yarn So you've got a question, you dive into it, you test assumptions, you look at the nuance, you look at the edge cases, what happens if it's 10% different than I expected? What happens if you're checking, oh, what about this and what about this and what about this? You're looking at the exceptions, the rules, you're talking to people and in the middle there, it feels confusing and chaotic and you're like, I don't know really what to do. And then you get quiet, like you you, uh, analyze all of it and you say, look, I think here's the things that matter. So my process is that. I take some problem. I go in. I get really frustrated in the middle of that ball of yarn. I think that I label that ball of yarn complexity. I I love to just bury myself in the complexity of it, the nuance, and realize it feels messy. Sometimes we get confused by that feeling. We think we're doing something wrong. It's 
Like you should celebrate that feeling. Like, I don't know. I'm unmoored. It feels messy. Okay, good. It means I'm doing something right. Then we just kind of got to take a guess. And I I like thinking of this as there's a, a saying, strong opinion, loosely held. I like even better thoughtful, thoughtful opinion, loosely held. So I'm going to make, after all this research and work I've done and cases and things I've reviewed, I'm going to make a guess about about the direction. I'm going to have a thoughtful opinion about the direction I'm going to go forward. That's when you come out the other side. Now, do you see the difference between that? That's called elegant simplicity on the other side. There's a big difference between simplistic, like I don't even know what I'm talking about, so I'm just going to make it up. And I've gone through this. Often getting to an elegantly simple solution involves... John Bogle said once, I'm paraphrasing, but he said like, it involves cutting through swaths of complexity. So I would write this out. I'd say like that, what matters? I'd talk to different people and then I'd say, you know what? Here's what matters. What's the 80%? What's the most important concept? If I had to, games I play, if I had to reduce it to 250 words, which is so hard. If I had to reduce it to 250 words, what would I say? If I had to reduce it to one piece of cardstock and I had to use a Sharpie to do it. So it was a blunt instrument. What would I put on that piece of paper? And then you can do all sorts of things like after you've got it, maybe this is a, maybe this is a paper you've written to a client or it's a marketing piece. Then you can go through. And I love doing this, like realize cut away anything that distracts from the point. We call that the zinger internally. We call that the zinger. Like you could call it a punchline in the newspaper business. We call it the lead. Don't bury the lead. So anything that distracts from the point, take it away. Pull it out. Like we literally go and take whole sentences and paragraphs out of stuff and go, did we lose anything? And you only get to make one point. I mean, geez, I've debated this with Kitsis all day long because he doesn't agree with me here. You, you, he thinks you can make 87 points on one piece of paper. <laughs> so, <laughs> Or one weekend, re- one weekend reading. I'm like, come on, brother. Oh my God. One, but, one blog post. You're like, holy cow. <laughs> yeah, you're like, That's a year's worth of reading for me. So, so anyway, those are some of the things I play with. So if you, But I think the most important part is the mindset of understanding you, the listeners of this podcast, are not and or they sh- shortly won't be simplistic. Yeah, you should be you you should be fearful about being replaced when you're simplistic. You're elegantly simple. And then the last thing I'll say on this because I think it's important for this audience is as I get this all the time like well I'm younger, I'm new in the business, I like but I think what you do first is you as you as you proceed like just match so take the questions you're interested in answering for people and make sure your level of confidence is 20% above that, right? Like you are totally confident with that question. And then just keep moving those things up, right? So if you get a question that's above your level of confidence, confidently say, I don't know the answer to that, but give me whatever. Give me a week, give me a couple of days. Like I know who to call. I will find you an answer. And confidently say that because people will say, oh my gosh, that's amazing. It's okay, but the way to build your business is just to slow find questions you're really interested in answering that your level of confidence is above those questions. You know the answer, you feel totally confident. And then over time, you're just going to keep moving those two bars up higher and higher and higher. And when you don't know, you're going to say, I don't know. I'm still saying I don't know all the time. Like, hey, brother, I don't know the answer to that, but I, it's not going to take me very many phone calls to get it. So, you know, we're talking about taking these complex ideas and making them simple or this elegant simplicity. 
I'm curious, how do you know when you've been successful in making things simple? So one thing you have to realize in playing that game is that it, it requires you to drop a lot of nuance. And so there is, I, I often get it wrong, right? There are times when there are answers that are simple, elegant, and wrong. <laughs> and <laughs> and, and I've, I've done my share of that. The way I know is the response I get. I have a couple bellwether people, you know, and one of them just happens to be a really good friend who's also my editor. And, and so I, I'll get a response from them. But here's maybe a simpler way is like when it resonates with you, if you think it's interesting and important and helpful, it is. I know quickly, immediately, as soon as I said that, I could feel people feeling the imposter syndrome. Like, well, yeah, but nobody else thinks it is. Yet, yes, they do. Like, I had to convince myself of that like three or four times a day for 15 years. If you think it's interesting, other people do too. And I think that's the best bellwether to whether or not you've hit the mark with what, in, in my case, like the mark around trying to make things simple. Because if I think I captured it, then I'm going to put it out in the public. It's not my job to decide if I hit the mark. We'll just, we'll just, my job is to do the work and put it out. Speaking of doing the work, one of the things that's most impressive to me is that you've been doing this weekly sketch for 10 years. Do you ever run out of ideas for sketches or kind of what is that, that continuous process of, of, of taking these, I mean, we're taking these complex ideas and making them simple, but also making these sketches. What does that, what does that look like for you? Or is that difficult to keep coming up with ideas? When we started this, like we did this little experiment, it was five days. It was called ask an expert. That's how this happened. And I answered a question every day for five days. And at the end, I said to the editor of the New York Times, I said, hey, should we keep going? He's like, well, how often? I said, how about once a week? And he said, well, won't you run out of things to say? And I said, I, I don't know. Let's find out. So I, I still have more ideas. My, my list of sort of draft ideas, which I sort of keep just, I, just in case anybody asks, because everybody wants to know, like, what are the tools and tar- I just simply use Apple Notes. Like, I pull up a little note and I write an idea down. That's it. It's the end. There's nothing more complex than that and nothing more complicated than that. So, so then what I do um, is, yes, it's hard. Often it's a, a question or a feeling. It's some, like I feel like my job in the world is to notice things, is, is to notice things and then share them. And often it's just a little mindset shift, like, oh, could we look at this just a little differently? And so sometimes that involves, most of the time it starts with writing it. And then trying to illustrate it. And illustrating, it's getting harder. And it's, it, that's getting harder because I, you know, like I went through my Venn diagram phase and then I went through my bar graph phase. And then I went through <laughs> my, like, like, that's getting a little bit harder. But finding things to write about isn't getting any harder. Where do you see yourself in five or 10 years? Like, do you see yourself like continuing what you're doing? I really want... And we're, we're actively working on this. And to a large degree, that's what the fellowship and the Society of Advice represents, is I want to take this body of work. And I, and I realize that nobody gave me permission to do this. I, like I, I gave myself permission to do it. And, and if it doesn't work for some people, that's fine. It's not for them. It's okay. I, I want to take my body of work and say, look, I'd like to kind of forcibly insert my opinion into the industry of what real financial planning is about and and have that 
like in the form of a, and to a large degree, that's what the fellowship is. It's like, this is my manifesto. I'm going to focus more over the next five to 10 years on the whole human. And whether that's a financial planner or not, just somebody who's a creative entrepreneur, I'm going to be focusing more on how do we do work that we're called to do? And how do, how do we deal? I, I call it dancing with dragons. Like how do we, dance with dragons and the reason for dragons is like dragons guard all the goods right they they drag so like dragons are awesome going to where dragons live is awesome it could, but you could also die there like it's not easy work and so how do you do creative work how do you do work that's true i've worked with so many financial planners especially young ones that are like wait i had a i had a dream about what this would be like and now i'm in a position where i'm forced to sell life insurance. This is not what I wanted. And that would be an example of somebody I'd want to say like, okay, let's do the thing you wanted. Like, well, no, but I'm not allowed to. What, 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 what? Who told you you're not allowed to, but nobody like giving people permission to do the thing, whatever the thing is. That's what I want to do for the next, giving myself two years to kind of put this big sort of bow on my work or specifically around financial planning. And then, and then I want to spend 10 years helping people do their thing. I've heard throughout this interview, you've, you've mentioned the word creative and creating and, and, and words like that. Do you ever find yourself in a place where you're, the phrase is a creative desert that's coming to mind, um, where you don't feel inspired or, or creative. And, and if you do, what do you do to get out of that? Yeah, totally. I do all the time. And I, what I do is I create and I love when Seth Godin talks about like plumbers don't get plumbers block, right? Like you, you, you just get up and get to work. So I have found when I'm feeling blocked, the single best thing I can do is create. And then the flywheel starts. And then like an hour into it. And to me, it's talking. Like I just get on the phone and have a conversation with somebody or talk through something. or And then I suddenly, the energy's there and the flywheel starts. And then it's just like, boom, and you're off and running. So yeah, I think, I think there's a myth around creativity that's this, and maybe it works this way for some people, like the, like the muse has to show up. But I think for most of us, oh, Elizabeth Gilbert's great talk around the, the, the muse showing up. And she, she said, you know, for me, it's more like, I'm more like a mule, right? Like I just show up and get to work. So if you want to, if you want to build a creative piece to your, and I think, by the way, financial planners are artists right? Dealing with massive uncertainty, creating the future, painting a picture of that. Like, I think we are trained artists, but if you have a piece of like, I want to write a little bit more, I want to create a little bit more. Well, the single best thing to do is write. You want to write, then write. You want a podcast, then podcast. You want to like, and don't give me any excuses around like, I have a podcast. And I was like, oh, geez, it's not highly edited and I don't want to deal with getting guests so I can't have a podcast. Oh, guess what? You can do a podcast without guests. Oh, did you know that? Yeah, you can. Oh, who gave you permission? Oh, I did. You know what I'm saying? Like, I love these intentional constraints. Anytime I come up with an excuse to not do something, I like to flip it and say, well, wait, what if I just use that as a constraint? Turns out if I'm going to have a podcast, I'm not going to have guests. Whoa, are you allowed to do that? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Right? I've had a million downloads or a million plays. Nobody even knows about it. It's a secret podcast that's had a million plays. It's just me talking for three to seven minutes a day. Right. So anyway, that's an example of 
when you feel a block, you can flip the block and say, ah, I'm a huge fan of, in, of really intentional constraints, like Sharpie and cardstock. Why don't you use, well, because I only do it, if I can't do it with Sharpie and cardstock, I can't do it. Now it's my iPad Pro and an Apple Pencil and the most basic drawing app. If I can't do it with that, I haven't gotten it right yet. So intentional constraints, do the work. Don't give me these excuses. I mean, I, I do want to reach out and give you a hug right now. Like I know it's hard. Like I know it. But then I want to say a little punch in the face, which is like, let's get to work. Like we, we don't have time for this. I can't, I can't, I can't. We got to get after it. What would be the one thing you'd want to tell new financial planners? Oh, geez. Just please, like, please understand the value of the work you do. Real financial advice has never been harder to find. Right? Because there's so much fake. Like, there's so many books and so many, like, there's, so real financial advice has never been harder to find and therefore never been more valuable. And so when you're feeling beat up a bit, you're, you're like, I don't even know. I've had this conversation so many times with young planners, like this industry isn't what I thought it was. Like, yeah, then make it what you thought it was. Like if there's a place for you and every time I have that, I'm like, what's your vision of it? And they tell me, I'm like, that, that's the thing we need. Please don't go away. Do the thing. And if it involves playing a little chess for a while, so you can earn your stripes or whatever it takes, like do it. Just understand that the value you provide to the world's massive. That's the one thing. Like, don't forget how valuable you are. And for people listening, where can they follow you or where can they they keep in touch? Well, the single best thing to do, I mean, you can follow me on Twitter, it's at Behavior Gap, but the single best thing to do is to go to the societyofadvice.com and just <laughs> dance with the dragons a little bit and, and trust me put your email address in and get an invitation to the fellowship because even if you decide not to join the fellowship the little secret is the first four days i send you some of my best work ever it's called the four secrets and we don't tell anybody about it so you, this is like a secret but my goal of everybody who puts their email address in there is to give them such valuable content that even if they don't ever join the fellowship they feel like it's been well worth their time. So go to the societyofadvice.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Markel Insurance. As an investment advisor, you know even the littlest details can make a huge impact, such as those tiny footnotes in the back of a prospectus or annual report. For your firm's professional insurance coverage, the details are also important. That's why your firm needs insurance coverage developed for financial service professionals to protect you, your firm, and your assets. Markel's Investment Advisors Program offers heirs and omissions and directors and officers insurance. They've insured our industry and profession for three decades and have a strong reputation within our community as a result of its industry experience, stable premiums, and excellent claims management services. Markel is proud to be the choice of thousands of financial service professionals. Contact your insurance broker or agent today to get a quote from Markel. Love what you hear on this podcast? Join us in the FPA Activate Facebook community, where you'll find a community of other passionate planners like you. Not only that, but there are live How We Do What We Do sessions focused on what real financial planning looks like in practice. Be sure to join us there to lend your voice, become a better planner, and help grow the financial planning profession.